set up in their hearts and souls. Its riches are spiritual, its power supernatural, and its glory eternal. It does not need weapons of this world or armies of men to maintain or advance its borders. Its object and design are not visible. This is a kingdom not of this world. It is invisible. I hope we're all aware that God is doing things in the supernatural realm that we cannot see, that are beyond what we can see in the natural. And it's important for us to be aware that there is a whole supernatural world that's going on, battle between good and evil, between God and the forces of evil in this world. But God has also given us a dispensation of the supernatural. That's why we're looking at the miracles of the life of Elijah. So far, we've understood that the supernatural can be confrontational, counterintuitive, revelatory, and refreshing. There are a number of things that God does. And this morning, with the next a miracle from the life of Elijah will see that the supernatural also carries the dynamic of the prophetic. I shared on Wednesday night that this morning's message is one that's probably not the most inspiring in the story when you read that a prophetic word comes that Ahab is going to die, the dogs are going to lick his blood, all of his sons will be killed, and Jezebel will die, and the dogs will eat her flesh. Welcome to Brian on Sunday morning. But there's always something in the prophetic that not only speaks to our hearts, but reveals to us something about the heart of God. In the Old Testament, a sign of the Spirit of God on an individual's life was ecstatic supernatural utterance. That's why it's so important to understand the gift of speaking in tongues in a New Testament context was not to the Jews something that would be completely uh, new or foreign to them because they understood that the sign of the Spirit of God was ecstatic supernatural utterance and that happened in the Old Testament as well as in the New in the form of prophecy. In fact, it tells us about Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When they arrived at Gibeah, a profession of prophets met him and the Spirit of God came upon him in power and he joined in their prophesying. While all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to Saul of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So I need you to understand that one of the signs, primary signs of a prophetic voice or a supernatural move of God was that ecstatic um, supernatural utterance that was called prophecy in both the Old and New Testaments. Now the role and expression of prophecy in the Old and New Testaments has changed and I just need to give you a little bit of a picture because the idea of prophecy is so badly abused in our culture today. So while I'm not going to preach about that, I do need to give you a little bit of a framework. In the Old Testament, if a prophet's prophecy failed, he was to be stoned. That would cut down on the number of prophets today. However, the New Testament doesn't require that. Because its scope is broadened, the New Testament says, let the prophet speak and let the other judge. 
recognizing that we will have to learn and grow and develop that response to the Spirit, but rather than stoning, there was a development process that was established. In the Old Testament, prophecy was very, very often a warning from God or a judgment from God. Not always, but very often. In the New Testament, prophecy takes a different expression. It comes to the church in the form of edification, comfort, and exhortation. And in the Old Testament, prophets were few in number. It was a special calling from God. In the New Testament, in Corinthians, we're told that we should all covet to prophesy, that we should all want to be the spokesperson or mouthpiece for God in the generation that we live. In fact, he said, if everybody speaks in tongues, they'll say you're crazy. But if we all prophesy, the secrets of men's hearts will be made bare. So the expression scope has changed but the utterance comes the same from God. It is both in the Old Testament and New Testament foretelling and forthtelling. What does that mean? There are times that prophecy comes to tell the future, which is what fascinates uh, immature American Christians today. But it's also a forthtelling of truth. Not just telling the future, but expression of God's truth. For the prophet becomes, in that sense, a mouthpiece for God. So when Elijah prophesies in the supernatural event about Ahab and Jezebel and his family, not only is he telling Ahab what's about to happen, he's giving us a revelation of the nature and character of God. And I'm absolutely convinced that if we would put prophecy in its right place in the church today, we'd be able to get rid of the excesses rather than being afraid of it being abused because we should all want to be used by God to speak his word in this generation to people that are around us. How many are hearing me this morning? That should be our desire in our heart. All prophecy is essentially supernatural. And so there are only two sources for supernatural manifestation. There's that demonic counterfeit that we have to deal with, but there's also the genuine, holy, supernatural voice of God that he speaks through his people. So Elijah's prophecy today that we'll be looking at in 1 Kings 21, 22 is a prophecy against Ahab, and I don't have time to give you all the historical uh, background and fulfillment of those except to say all of the things that Elijah prophesied happened in the life of Ahab. Ahab will die where Naboth died. Ahab's lineage will be eliminated, and Jezebel's flesh will be eaten by dogs when she dies. So in that incredibly negative context, what is it that we learn about God and about the supernatural? And I think there are some things there that can be helpful. How many are ready for this message to start moving upward? <laughs> for this to get a little better. All right. Well, we've got the tough stuff out of the way, and it will show up again. The first thing that I think jumps out to us that our culture needs to understand, that our world needs to understand, that the church needs to understand, is that our God is a God who is long-suffering. Every one of you should give thanks that God is long-suffering and then blast you into oblivion the last mistake you made. How many are glad for that? 
But it's a dangerous thing to presume upon the long-suffering of God because we see clearly in this story that the long-suffering of God has limits. There's a limit, an end to his long-suffering when judgment will come. And it's a dangerous thing for us to presume upon that. Ahab has led the nation in evil and led the nation away from God. The Bible says in 1 Kings 21 that, that there never was a man like Ahab who did who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. So what God had driven out, Ahab goes back and embraces. And what happens here, I need you to watch what happens here. This becomes important a little bit. What is it that scripture identifies as his evil? His evil in this text is moving the nation away from God and serving idol gods. And there comes a point, I think, that probably all of us, all of us have asked in this generation and in this biblical text, why didn't God just take him out? Pastor Booth used to tell about the lady who said, told her pastor she was so mad at her husband she wished she could kill him and tell God he died. <laughs> now, I'm not asking if you've ever felt that, but have you ever known anyone that felt that way? <laughs> I want to put them out of my misery. You look at what's happening in our world, and sometimes I ask myself, why does God let that continue? Why doesn't he just take them out? There'd be, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> There'd be a great revival if some people just start dropping dead. Hallelujah. <laughs> if that would just take place, it'd be amazing. Except you have to understand the heart of God. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His long-suffering tarried in the days of Noah. It tarries in our day. We serve a long-suffering God. Don't mistake the lack of God's judgment as an endorsement of what's happening, but understand it as a manifestation of his love and caring and compassion that men and women, boys and girls, will have a chance to come back to God or come to him for the first time and surrender their life to Jesus. I mean, every one of us probably have been frustrated by some things are allowed to happen in our world. Is there anyone with me this morning? But understand that God's long suffering is that his ultimate desire is that men and women would come to faith in Christ. He is not slack concerning his promise. His love suffers long. And the delay of God's judgment is an expression of his mercy wanting everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. But what we have to really understand is that God's long suffering is not eternal. It doesn't go unending. There's a day when that ends. And in this story with Naboth, there comes a point where God says, enough is enough. 
Do you despise, Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation in the righteous judgment of God. Ahab did evil more than anyone that had ever led Israel. And God has not yet destroyed him because of his long suffering and mercy. But I feel like a warning needs to be given. And I think a warning needs to be given particularly to second generation Christ followers who think that because they've not seen the judgment of God, the judgment of God doesn't exist. And we live in a culture where we have transformed God into a white bearded Santa Claus in heaven who only does good things and we come to enjoy his benefit. But there is something about the fear of God that needs to return to the church in America that it is an awesome thing, a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And there are consequences for rebellion. And just because you're not experiencing them now, just because our nation isn't experiencing them now, doesn't mean that it won't happen. Do not mistake the long-suffering of God for the approval of God. Because a day of judgment will come for all of us. I worry about some of the things I see happening in our culture and our generation, even within our own fellowship. When I watch the brazenness of some things that are said and the behaviors that are manifested as though God can't do anything about it. I'll never forget the story that was told in the early or late 1800s about an atheist who was challenging preachers all over the United States. And he would get in a center of town, stand on a wash tub, and call all the Christians together and say, I'm going to give your God five minutes to kill me. And he would stand there and blaspheme God and curse God. And then one account tells him, standing there in town, saying, now, five minutes. I'm going to give God five minutes to kill me if God is real. Well, people gathered around waiting, expecting for him to die. Four minutes, three minutes, two minutes. The story says that some women shrieked, that some individuals even passed out for fear of what was going to happen. Five minutes went by, and the man obviously doesn't die. He's not killed. And he says, therefore, your God does not exist. There was an old pastor there standing on the edge watching it happen. And he said, did you think in your arrogance and foolishness that you could exhaust the long-suffering of God in five minutes? (laughs) Just because he didn't get you doesn't mean he won't. Hello? Doesn't mean he won't. God's long-suffering is not forever. The other thing that stands out really clearly is that God views man's oppression of men, God views man's oppression as wicked. So you have to ask yourself, remember now, this whole picture as it develops, this terrible judgment has been issued against Ahab. Why now? Remember, he's done things more evil, more wicked than any king ever before him. What brings us to this place that God says enough is enough? And when mankind oppresses mankind, God deems that as evil. 
The line is drawn, not just because he's led them in false worship. The line is drawn because now Ahab oppresses one of the kingdom of God in a way that is um, abominable. Ahab sees a vineyard and it belongs to Naboth and he wants it. So he approaches Naboth and really gives Naboth a pretty good deal. I'll buy it for you. I'll trade you for other land. Uh, for whatever reason, Ahab wanted that piece of land. How many have ever wanted something you found out later God didn't want you to have? <laughs> when we were pastoring an old wine, home missions church, couldn't hardly pay the bills, trying to put it all together. We were having car trouble. And I went, I don't know what possessed me that day. Our car wasn't running well and there was a local dealer in town. And so I drove into the uh, end of the lot and just wondered, you know, what's a new car go for? And um, he put me in this new vehicle and I got in. And how many of you have ever been intoxicated by new car smell? <laughs> I got in that car. Oh, and God started talking to me. I was going to use this for the kingdom. God, what a blessing this would be if somehow supernaturally this would come to pass. And I thought, I got myself so sure of it. I drove home to show Carol and I said to her, I'm, it's the only time I've ever really said this. I said to her, she came out of, we were living in a 14 by 60 trailer and I want a new car. I, she came out and I said, look at this car. And she looked at it and I said, I really feel like God wants us to have this car. And she looked at me and said, okay, did God tell you how we're going to pay for it? <laughs> and then she looked at me and, and she doesn't normally talk. You know, she's not harsh at all, but she said, you just need to drive it back and get our car. So I did. That's why I've said over the years that the voice of God in my life sounds a lot like my wife. Anybody relate to that? <laughs> relate to that? I want that. And Ahab looked at that vineyard and he said, I want that. I want that vineyard. I want it to be mine. And so when Naboth refuses, Ahab does what any powerful man does. He pouts. How many of you know a powder? Don't point, just raise your hand. <laughs> oh, I, I have some pet peeves. And I'm just telling you, God, I, I just need you to know this. God has not graced me with the gift of ministering to powders. You need to see someone else on the team if you're going to pout because I'm going to try to take that away from you. I'd rather you got mad and kick something than to pout around. And he's whining around and pouting around. And so Jezebel says, so what is your problem? Well, I wanted this vineyard and, and Naboth won't give it to me. And so, so she hatches a plan and she recruits to, um, I think it calls them um, scoundrels in the NIV, scoundrels to testify in court that Naboth had blasphemed God and they are so convincing that a ruling is made against him and he is drug out to the edge of the city and stoned. 
And Jezebel comes back and says, Ahab, now you can have your vineyard. It's at that point that God says enough is enough in the life of Ahab. You say, was Ahab just being stubborn? No, you have to understand what all was involved in that transfer of property. He's a faithful son of God's covenant. The place where his vineyard sat was apportioned to families by God when Israel took possession of the land of promise. The land was a core component of the covenant relationship that God had with Israel. That land belonged to their family. Each family received its inheritance by a divinely guided lot. They were not free to do with the land whatever they wanted. And under the covenant, the land was never to be permanently transferred to someone else. Israel lived in a covenant of faithfulness as they remained committed to the land that God had given them. That was a big deal. And Naboth is saying, I can't give that to you. I'm not going to give that to you. It doesn't matter if you give me twice as much land because I'm not selling my covenant relationship to God for temporal profit. Ahab has no concept of that. And it makes him really, really angry. Jezebel takes action. So I need to say something here that I hope you'll hear in the heart I intended. God hates oppression and injustice. God hates oppression and injustice. Micah 6.8 says, He, God, has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In that New Testament book of Philemon, when Philemon um, is approached by Paul about a slave that has escaped and Paul meets Onesimus to send him back, listen to what Paul says to Philemon. I'm sending him back, the slave Onesimus, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. That the kingdom of God addresses the issues of injustice and oppression. And if we're going to solve the issues of injustice and oppression in our world today, it will not be done by a political party. It will not be done by political posturing. It will not be done by political legislation. It will be done when we return to biblical principles and when men and women experience the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. Racial issues go away. Tensions are gone because we're no longer of various ethnic descents. We are children of God washed in the blood gathered together to exalt him. And the problem in this whole discussion by what's being called critical race theory is the world's answer to oppression and injustice is this. Someone will always be the oppressor. Someone will always be oppressed and it's time to turn the wheel and those who have been the oppressor now need to be the oppressed. You see, there isn't any answer in the hearts of man because it just changes who the oppressor is. But when we come to Jesus, all things are passed away. Come on. All things are become new. He's torn down the wall that separates us and the church ought to be the place where we love and care and hold one another up that we have no room for racism we have no room for injustice we have no room for oppression because we stand on biblical principles that we're all brothers and sisters in the family of God is there anybody in the house this morning God hates oppression he hates injustice
The book of James warns us about that as well. You've held back by fraud from the workers and God will hold you accountable. God has a better plan than critical race theory. It's called redemption. <laughs> Boy, that'll preach. I wish someone knew how to do that. That'll preach. It's called redemption. And we need to be on the forefront of that. Rather than complaining about the road the world is on, the world's on that road because we're not effectively communicating our message and bringing people to faith. Let's storm the gates of hell in our community and all the spheres of influence and let it be known and modeled and demonstrated that this is a place where together we worship God in one big family. But, but you have to ask, God pronounces at that point judgment on Ahab. You're going to die. Dogs will lick your blood. Your, your descendants are going to be wiped out. And dogs will eat your wife's flesh. Why now? And why didn't he spare Ahab? I mean, Naboth. Why didn't he spare Naboth? Do you wonder about that? If God hates oppression... Why does he let this happen? I mean, he's pronounced judgment on Ahab. Couldn't he have delivered Naboth? Hello? Am I the only one that thinks that way? Couldn't he have delivered Naboth? I wonder why. Why didn't he? Why didn't God intervene? I mean, I'd have... <laughs> why didn't he kill Ahab before Naboth was killed? So are you ready for the answer? How many ready for the answer? Ready for the answer? Seven of you are ready. Here's the answer. I don't know. I don't know. There's some things that lay in the hand of God and need to be left there. We struggle in faith over things that we don't understand because in reality, we don't really trust. We want it all to make sense. How many of you have looked at something in your life and said, God, why haven't you done something? Why did you let this happen? Why did you let this sorrow come? Why did you let this tragedy come? You could have done something. I remember first church, again, that we pastored. I've told the story before, but our firstborn, Josh, had an ear infection. First child, ear infection. That's preparation for purgatory. How many know what I'm talking about? You hold them up and they quit crying, but as soon as you lay them down, they start again. Hold them up and lay them down. And I, it's, it's like two in the morning and I'm exhausted and I'm holding him, rocking him. And I remember getting really, really angry with God. And I said, I'm just praying. I said, God, you claim to love me. You claim to love my family. You say you love people. But I'm telling you right now, if I were you and I loved this child, I'd heal him. Where are you? And um, God killed me and the paramedics came, <laughs> raised me from the dead. Not at all. You know, aren't you glad God just lets us vent sometimes? And I heard him say, I heard him say, I love him and I love you 
more than you will ever understand love. And until you trust that, your ministry and life will never prosper. You have to trust me when you don't understand. I still don't know why I had to sit up all night. But I've learned how to trust him when I don't understand. Are you hearing me this morning? Somebody needs to grab a hold of that right now. I'm not telling you everything will make sense and you'll understand everything. I mean, I read in Acts chapter 12, they're praying for the church. The church is praying for the apostles. And they take in James and kill him. And, they, and then God lets Peter go. What sense does that make? I don't know. But I've learned a long time ago, if I'm not in the driver's seat, I don't have to give directions. I don't have to be in charge. I need to trust that God has a plan. And here's what I do know, that there is a greater reward for the martyrs who gave their life in commitment to Christ, commitment to the kingdom that will be revealed in eternity that we won't understand. And I don't know why. God didn't spare Naboth but I do know that when I don't understand I simply need to trust is everyone in the house right now when I don't understand I simply need to trust because if your faith is based on mathematics two plus two equaling four you aren't going to make it if it's based on everything making sense you're not going to make it and God sometimes withholds his rationale because we're not ready to receive it and he has a purpose and that he is going to accomplish that will be revealed as we walk with him when we get to heaven and I can't imagine I can't imagine making it to heaven, standing in the presence of the Father and saying, it cost me too much to get here. How many of you have all these questions you're going to ask the Lord when you get to heaven? Well, I have a list. I have a list. I've got a bunch. I want him to explain to me. Here's what I really do believe. When we step into that city where the lamb is the light. When we step into that place that we are glorified, we're in, we're in a spirit body, we're in a whole new dimension. I think all the things we wonder about here won't matter over there. And if you're going to make it, I'm just telling you, you have to trust when it doesn't make sense because you're not in charge. God at that point says, all right, Ahab, you've crossed the line. Enough is enough. He deems it as being wicked. Now watch, here is a piece that is just as hard for me as everything I've said so far. Humility will always be rewarded. God responds to humility. The Bible tells us in chapter 21, verse um, 28, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. And I laugh when I read this in the NIV. So just forgive me. Can I have a little bit of fun here for a moment? You don't have to enjoy this, but it's fun for me. All right. Um, sometimes I ride a roller coaster with my wife, even though I hate him. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself. And I just, I just, I, I can't get there. God is walking around. And he went, huh, hey, Elijah, have you noticed? Ahab's changed. Oh, 
I don't believe that's at all the tenor of the text. In other versions, almost every other version, it doesn't say, have you noticed? It's not a question that God is asking. It's a declaration that he's making to Elijah as he says, do you see? Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. God speaks in response to the change of life that Ahab is manifesting. I will not bring disaster in his day. It will happen, but he won't have to see it. What is God saying? I'm, I think he's, I really believe God is showing us that there are times that, that there's some consequences that you can't undo. But there's some consequences that might be delayed. It's not that it's not going to happen. But God says, because he's humbled himself, he's not going to have to see this come to pass. I do think sometimes God spares us from the evil that's going to come. And the key to that is humility. God didn't change his mind. Ahab changed his heart. And when Ahab changed his heart, God could respond differently to where Ahab was. So then you have to ask, why would judgment be delayed and experienced by Ahab's sons? Why not just lift the judgment? Because there are consequences to sin that sometimes can't be undone. And to a younger generation, I want to declare to you that while he forgives everything and makes it as though you've never sinned, sometimes there are consequences that continue in spite of his forgiveness because some things can't be undone. If I walk up to you with a gun and I shoot you in the chest and kill you, how many of you believe that God can forgive me? But how many know that person's still dead? There's some consequences that can't be undone. And God's put something in motion. And I want to touch on something that really is a whole other message in itself, but I need us to hear something uh, that is revealed in this story that I think is equally important. And I know there's a lot here, but I, I want you to grab a hold of this piece. Why would judgment be delayed? Well, some would say it's a generational curse. And I need you to understand that the Bible knows nothing of generational curses. Not in the way that it's currently taught. A generational curse is taught that if you have a problem, it's going to be visited on your children that are born in your household, that the sin of the father passes to the sin of the child. And the scripture is really clear that that is not the case. That's not going to happen. So why does the Bible say that he would visit the iniquities of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me? Why would he say that? Well, he's also going to give mercy. Um, Mercy to the thousands upon thousands that love him. Let's talk about that as well. So what is happening then in our world? Why is it that an alcoholic's child is more likely to be an alcoholic? Why is it that a molester's child is more likely to be a molester? It's not because of a curse. It's not because of a curse that God put on your family. It's because of the seed you sowed into your children. It's not God's fault. It's your sowing. So parents, listen to me. You can do whatever you want to do and think you're getting by 
and repent, but some consequences can't be undone. It's going to be reaped in your children's lives, what you've sown into them. Now, God can change them and redeem them, but really what's being modeled here is that Ahab's, why is God going to judge Ahab's sons? Not because of what Ahab did, but because of what Ahab sowed into them. And when you follow the lifestyle of the sons, they were as vile, if not more vile than Ahab, not because of a curse, but because of the law and sowing and reaping. And all of us need to be really, really careful what we're sowing into our families. Don't blame God for what's happening in your children. Look at what you've sown in them. Now, I know that other people sown them too, okay? You're not the only one. I'm trying to take away the idea that God somehow did this to my kids. It's what's been sown into them, and it's our job to pull out the weeds and fertilize the good seed. It's going to happen, Ahab, just not in your days. Good news is that God does honor the humble. So whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you've experienced, James says that God gives more grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James chapter 4, humble yourselves under before the Lord and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, 5, young men in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God that he will lift you up in due time. There is always a way back to God. There's always a way back always a way back. Ahab had done more evil than anyone before him, but he found a way back to God. That didn't undo all the damage, but it did delay the judgment that was going to come. So I'm saying to you, church, this is kind of a call for us to do a bit of self-examination. Am I living and walking in the place where God wants me to live and walk? Am I in that place where I can walk in the place of God's blessing? Understand that God's long suffering has limits, that oppression, wherever it shows its ugly head, will be judged by God. But God will always respond to the humble. God will always reward humility. And if we will be, if we will be humble before God, there'll be a place of blessing that he will bring us to in the midst of an ungodly world that we live in. And I do think the call is for us to be able to hear the prophetic voice of God and to be willing to be the voice of the prophet in the world around us. Are you listening for the prophetic voice of God? Will you respond to it? And will you be that voice in this generation? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 that we should all covet to prophesy. Last Sunday, I talked about the gift of speaking in tongues that builds you up. But the church in this generation needs to have the prophetic voice returned to the church, not afraid to speak to the issues that are among us and outside of us. And as we encourage and build one another up to hear the voice of God and to speak the word of God. Are you hearing me this morning? I believe we've got to return to that. Would you stand with me? And if there's some part of your life that needs to surrender before him, let that be this morning. Let this be the day that you surrender that. And just as importantly, here's what I'd ask us to pray this morning. God, give me an ear to hear your prophetic voice and give me a mouth to speak 
the words that you give me in this generation that I live, regardless of the consequences. Could we take some time to magnify him together? Would you just set yourself in with God and say, God, bring a revival in this place of your prophetic voice, of your prophetic word. When I look into your holiness, when I gaze into your love, that surround become shadows in the light of you when I found the joy of reaching your heart when my will becomes enthralled in your All things that surround become shadows in the light of you. Come on, sing it out. I worship you. generation and give us courage 
to be that voice in this generation. Let us hear you and respond and proclaim truth in Jesus' name. And everyone in agreement said, amen. If you love Jesus, let me hear your hands this morning. Let me give you one example of the voice that needs to be heard in our land today. All the legislation in the world will never stop school shootings. The problem isn't law. The problem is the wicked heart of mankind. And a nation that increasingly turns from God will experience increasing tragedy. Let's be the prophetic voice in this generation and call our nation back to God. We need to be that voice. We need to be that voice. Thank you so much for your kindness and support, your financial giving, your presence here, everything you're doing for the kingdom. Thank you so much for your faithfulness and giving. Amen. God bless you. Turn and greet someone, shake their hand, and encourage someone before you go today.